Christian greetings. At the onset, I will just say that I trust that there will be a little bit of forbearance uh, with the time. I don't want to um, uh, be controlled by the clock, uh, and it may run a little bit past 12 this morning, and uh, I just want you to be aware of that. I'm not oblivious to the time, but at the same time, I don't want to be controlled by that. <clears throat> In two weeks, we plan to ordain a brother from this congregation to serve this local body of believers as a deacon. Um, I'm sure that most of you have already been asking yourself, who among us is the best person for this responsibility, and, and rightfully so. Last week, Dwayne Weaver did a very good job of describing and outlining both the value and the significance within the significance of a deacon within the church. And, and it was from his own experience as a deacon and his own perspective. And if you weren't here last Sunday, I encourage you to make it a priority to listen to that message. Uh, it's available on our church's website. One thing that I felt like came across pretty strongly, even though he didn't say it, and I very much agree, is that the deacon does not fill somewhat of a secondary role. But it is a, it is a role to serve alongside, and, and we do well to remember that. This, it's not a secondary role. It is a less public role, but rather one that functions more behind the scenes and in ways that ultimately do enhance and build up the body in practical ways. And even though the deacon may not preach as frequently, his impact on the church body is significant. And the role of pastors and deacons allow each role to maximize their effectiveness by using the gifts and the calling that God has on their lives. They complement each other. They enhance each other. So this morning, I am going to be focusing on the qualifications given in Scripture for the deacon, as well as a bit of an assessment of our current team. James Yoder, who's coming to speak here uh, uh, over the ordination, requested that we cover the, this aspect of the qualifications several weeks prior to the ordination in order to give more time to prayerfully think about and consider whom God may be calling. And so that's what I, I want us to be doing here this morning. Just briefly highlighting again the role of the deacon. The role of the deacon varies significantly from congregation to congregation. Um, Dwayne did a good job describing last Sunday of his role and his personal experience of serving in that capacity, but we're not attempting to replicate that role here. Um, while we anticipate there will be some overlap, it's going to be distinctively different as well. We've identified three specific and broad, three broad categories, I should say, of responsibilities for the deacon role, and that is to spot and serve tangible needs, to promote, to protect and promote church unity, serve and support the ministry of the pastors. Those are the three primary responsibilities of the deacon. But as you can just tell by looking at that, and there's occasional preaching that goes with that as well, but these three areas could include a wide range of specific ways that that is done within any congregation. 
And so while these three aspects are foundational, we recognize that everyone has unique gifts and we want to keep these responsibilities, this role, general enough to allow the brother to shape the role to his giftedness and to serve the church in that way rather than forcing him into a specific uh, type of uh, role. But several things that I, th I think are pretty clear from these defined responsibilities. One is that of actively serving. And so it is watching for, it is pursuing, it is being on the lookout for, it's going after those tangible needs among those in our congregation. And another aspect is that of cultivating relationships, you know, being aware of potential ways that we can help each other, how we can uh, help each other along the way. And then also, I think that that is helpful in even becoming aware of those points of possible points of contention that may be simmering and being able to address those or even work through those before they become bigger issues. And then the third aspect is that of just simply supporting the pastors, of encouraging and coming alongside and assisting with what needs to be done there. And so that is just, in very general terms, again, outlining the, the scope of this role that we're looking for. While there are few specifics in the New Testament on how church leaders should function, there are some very specific qualifications for both pastors and deacons. Uh, and these qualifications make it clear that church leaders are to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and live lives of integrity and example for others. But nowhere does scripture indicate that these, these characteristics, these qualities are unique to pastors and deacons. Rather, these are qualities and characteristics that should be evidenced in every believer's life as they mature and walk with the Lord. And, you know, it's also interesting this morning we'll see that this is not just limited to men. In 1 Timothy 3 that we're going to be looking at, there are qualities that specifically relate to women mentioned there as well. And so I'm going to be referring to two texts this morning, and uh, primarily from 1 Timothy 3. So if you would turn there, 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. And then we're also going to look at several verses from Acts 6, and we'll refer to that briefly as well. I'm going to be reading 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13, and then, um, then we'll go to Acts 6. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good understanding for them, good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
Now flipping over to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to be reading the first four verses there. And this is the passage that Duane would have referenced last Sunday specifically as well. Now in these days there were disciples, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because of their because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching in the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So anyway, like I say, you might want to keep your finger in those two passages. We're going to refer to both of those, but primarily out of 1 Timothy. I've identified 10 attributes or quali as qualifications to serve as deacon from these passages. And, but Paul starts in verse 8 of, second, of 1 Timothy 3. He begins, deacons likewise. Preceding that, at the beginning, the first part of chapter 3 was the office of bishop or elder or pastor and the qualifications that go along with that. And so he is following this up that these are must-be characteristics of, uh, of the deacons. They have to have certain attributes, and, and these are qualifications that have to be met. What's interesting is these are, it's a different list, but there's also a lot of overlap, and we don't have time this morning to see kind of how they intersect with and even overlap with the pastor's qualifications, but they're very similar. Uh, there's one notable difference in that deacons are not required to be able to teach. That's probably the single biggest difference between these two lists. They use different terms, but as far as the attributes that are covered, very similar. So I'm going to just briefly cover each of these 10 characteristics um, here this morning. And the first one is that of being dignified in 1 Peter 3, verse 8. But this is also then, uh, if you go to Acts 6, it says that they were looking for men who were of good repute or of honest report. And so these are very similar, uh, and they kind of overlap here. The Greek word semnos is, that is you translated here as dignified in 1 Peter 3 is not a word that is easily translated into English. And that's how come you see the variation that you do among various translations. It describes a person whose attitudes and conduct win the admiration of others. It could be referred to as a respectable or well-thought-of person. And a good translation of this would also be worthy of respect. Deacons are expected to be role models of Christian character and living that out. Like I mentioned in Acts 6.3, they look for men of good repute or honest report to serve the tables. That is a very similar meaning. The term describes a person that's known and well-regarded within the congregation, a person that can be trusted 
to look after the material needs of others in an honest manner. That's what it means to be dignified, to be of good repute. What's interesting is that uh, immediately following this description here in 1 Timothy 3 is there are three negatives. And um, each of those three following characteristics would impede or would be a hindrance or would undermine this first character of being dignified. And perhaps these three negatives are areas of particular vulnerability as a deacon or church leader. And they certainly, if you look around, as we look at these next three, they've certainly contributed to frequent downfalls of political leaders and other people in positions of power or influence. But someone, the first qualification is that of someone worthy of respect and well-regarded um, and of an honest report, and that's a good key characteristic of a deacon. Not double-tongued. This term expresses the idea of saying one thing to one person and saying something different to another. It emphasizes the importance of integrity in our speech and prohibits any kind of duplicitous speech. Being double-tongued or two-faced might be another way of putting it. Ruins trust and it undermines the credibility of any leader. Honest speech with integrity builds trust and promotes the ability to work together as a group. And deacons in particular may find themselves in situations where they are between the pastoral team and what's being discussed and worked on there and people who may have differing, and the people they're trying to help, and there may be kind of opposing views there. And it could be tempting to reveal less than the full truth to one or the other group just to keep things more smoothly. But withholding information or slightly distorting it, lying would be another word for that, will always complicate things more in the long run. It may simplify some short-term things, but it will always complicate things in the long run. Ephesians 4.25 is a good reminder of that. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. It's always wiser to speak truth than to be double-tongued. And a deacon must be known for his integrity of speech and because what we say matters. And if we can't trust what is said, you, that person is not fit to serve in the role of deacon. Not addicted to much wine. It is unacceptable for church leaders, pastors, or deacons to be under the influence of alcohol, but I will add, or any such substance that would damage any aspect of their reputation and service for God. Enslavement to alcohol reveals a lack of spirit-controlled living. But beyond alcohol, any addiction, any addiction, impairs one's judgment and connection to reality. When somebody is addicted to something, they are irrational, and they just, they, they don't know how to think straight. So while this qualification specifies the addiction to alcohol, 
We live in an age where there's many other types of addictions as well, and I think we do well to be aware of that. And so this warning is against any addiction, whether it's drug or gambling or pornography or prescription drug medication or even social media addictions are only a few of the more commonly talked about pitfalls beyond alcohol that are far too common today. A person that is enslaved to these kinds of addictions is not worthy of the respect and is not qualified for the office of deacon. Not greedy for selfish gain. Selfishness and the allure for money and material possessions is not unique to the 21st century. Uh, even among the 12 disciples, Judas used his position and access to money to facilitate financial gain for himself. Paul is warning pastors and deacons about this danger, this risk. And it's interesting that this qualification is repeated almost verbatim in the other lists of qualifications for pastors as well. God is calling his church leaders, the pastors and deacons, to be more concerned about giving money than getting money. Deacons frequently have access to the church's resources, the financial resources. With, with this access comes opportunity. The Greek term translated selfish here is a strong word that emphasizes the idea of being of shameful or fraudulent gain. A deacon could actually use his position of the trust of people to enrich himself and find ways of that he can actually benefit financially from that, and that must not happen. It's interesting, and Paul was very aware of this risk that comes with handling money. He went out of his way to make sure that he remained honorable before God and people when it came to collecting and delivering funds from the Gentile churches to the poor believers in Jerusalem. In 2 Corinthians 8, we read, We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. So, I mean, Paul went out of his way to make sure that this gift that he was taking, there was no chance of accusation, false accusation. Given my role as CFO at Choice Books, I am both aware of and concerned about the temptation and opportunities that come when you're handling of funds that don't belong to myself. Pastors and deacons need to distance themselves from even the appearance of impropriety when it comes to money matters. Hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. A deacon must know and adhere to the mystery of the faith. What's the mystery of the faith? I believe it is the New Testament teachings and writings that we have available to us. It's the collection of teachings and beliefs that have been preserved for us. Pastors and deacons are called to be true to the Christian faith. It must be an integral part of our lives. And it has to be held with a clear conscience. We hang on to it, but it's also with a clear conscience. Conscience is that God-given inner awareness of the moral quality of my own actions. A deacon maintains clear, a clear conscience by consistently living in a way that 
harmonizes with the truth of God's revealed word. It is unacceptable to have a disconnect between what we say we believe and then how we live that out. And like I mentioned earlier, that the deacons, even though they are to have hold this, the mystery of the faith, they are not required to be able to teach, even though they, uh, they are holding to it. But that does not imply in any way that they cannot teach. Uh, it's simply not one of the primary requirements or responsibilities of the deacon. So then the next one is blameless, but prior to the qualification being blameless, in verse 10, Paul states clearly that a person must first be tested. And so there's a, um, there's a period or a, there's evaluation that needs to happen. And uh, I don't think that it's like there's this interrogation necessarily, but at the same time, both the example of life, the conduct, and just simply knowing the person goes a long ways. There, we do conduct an interview process as part of the ordination, uh, as the ordination role as well. But, but it, the, there's to be a track record there. Uh, there's to be something that demonstrates that. But then proving themselves blameless does not imply how we might interpret it today that deacon or pastors are perfect. Uh, that, that is not what it means, or that we're free of faults. We're human. Um, each one of us has character flaws. We have idiosyncrasies. We have traits that annoy others. That's just part of being human, and it's part of being a body and learning to work together in spite of those things. Um, being blameless or above reproach relates more to being the kind of person in which accusations or offenses and blame simply don't stick. It's the humility in which a person is willing to acknowledge and make right any offenses that he is confronted with. It just means keeping a clean slate in front of everyone and, and addressing those things. And it certainly includes being blameless in regards to those previous five qualifications that have already been given and not marginal in those areas. Husband of one wife. I'm not going to get into this. There is some ambiguity in the exact meaning of what this phrase means in the Greek language. But we can safely conclude that it, the meaning certainly includes the importance of fidelity in a marriage relationship. That, that is clear. The best way of I've heard this kind of described is that it carries the sense of being a one woman man, not a womanizer, flirtatious, or promiscuous in relationships with women. It is being a one woman man. There are two things that it does not mean that I also want to be clear on. So this is a qualification for a deacon, a husband of one wife. It does not mean that one has to be married to serve as a deacon. Neither does it mean that if one cannot be remarried after one is widowed, that that disqualifies you. It does not mean that. Uh, but it means that there is fidelity in the marriage relationship and that there's faithful marriage that is portrayed and demonstrated in that. <clears throat> a 
And faithful marriages are one of the clearest testimonies of the grace of God in our lives. Next, we have managing children and household well. And this is the final requirement given here in 1 Timothy, that the deacon should demonstrate the capability to manage his children and household well. We live in a sinful world where there are no perfect, problem-free children or parents. And this is not a demand for perfection. Rather, that the father is engaged in the process of raising children in a godly way. And the home is the first and maybe the best testing ground of a man's abilities in managing people and, the pro and problems in a godly way. All husbands and fathers, including myself, have their weaknesses, faults, and shortcomings. Uh, and children ultimately make a decision whether or not they will follow their parents' paths or not. And um, this qualification does not require that, there, that the children be grown before being eligible to serve in this role. And I, that question has already been raised to me. You know, why, how do you know if this is true or not? Timothy was a young man when he was called into church leadership. We have that record in the New Testament. Some people believe there's value in ordaining older men in part because of this qualification. But I would also express that there is a maturing that takes place as you serve in a role that is not necessarily going to be gained apart from the actual responsibility. And so uh, I, I, that's, that's just one aspect. Also, an ancient household in the first century would have included extended family and servants. So deacons need to demonstrate the ability to manage those in his care in a responsible way. And there needs to be a sense of stability that comes with that and not the, the type of situation that is on the verge of collapse because of mismanagement. Now flipping over to first to Acts 6, there are two other qualities that I just want to mention. And uh, that's out of uh, where he says, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, and he says, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. When the early church was looking to select these seven men, it specified that they were looking for men full of the Spirit. In most simple terms, this is probably the most critical aspect, most critical qualification, uh, and would summarize all the other qualifications in 1 Timothy. It's implied, but it's not stated, but we have to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Here the church focused on whether a person was full of the Spirit along with those two other qualifications. The centrality of the believer's relationship with God and control by the Holy Spirit are the most important qualities needed in church leadership. None of the other characteristics really matter if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the last one is that of full of wisdom. Solomon asked for wisdom, and that was the one thing he wanted from God, and God gave it to him. Wisdom is a skill. It's prudence, insight, intelligence, knowledge that comes from gained life experience, or that's, yeah, with life experience. It's the ability to learn from the past and make good or better decisions today and in the future. James tells us that if any of us lack wisdom, we should 
ask God for it. We all have a degree of wisdom. Um, they were looking for men full of wisdom, men who have demonstrated the ability to learn from their past experiences in healthy ways. So just quickly summarizing, these 10 qualifications are musts for the deacon position. None of them are easy and none of them are possible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do these things in our own strength. We can consistently do them if we, as we allow the transformative work of the Holy Spirit to control our lives. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5 that when it comes to church leadership, we also need to do so willingly, not under compulsion. And to serve in this capacity does require sacrifice of other desires and ambitions for the good of the body of Christ. There's also rewards that come with this. 1 Timothy 3.13, it says that there's a promise that those deacons whom serve well gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in their faith. I trust that each of us want to be men to meet these qualifications. Every disciple is called to this and more. To not even aspire to these qualities indicates a heart with affections for things apart from God. Let's encourage each other. Let's help each other be these kinds of men. We aren't perfect. We all stumble. We all struggle at times, but we can all strive to be a man worthy of this call. Now we're going to shift gears and just talk briefly about the qualifications for a deacon's wife. And there, while there's not specific qualifications given for a pastor's wife in the first seven verses, the wife of a deacon is specifically mentioned, and four qualifications are stated for the wife. Dignified, the same word that is used for the men. First characteristic, that of being worthy of respect, who is well regarded by others, and has the moral character and public uh, reputation that is needed in that and to serve well. Not slanderers. A slanderer spreads lies, false rumors, malicious gossip, and innuendos, and is capable of inflicting long-term irreparable damage to relationships and reputation of others. Today, especially through means of social media and electronic communication, more damage can be afflicted more broadly and more quickly than at any time in the past. A deacon's wife will have access to information about other people and their needs that others in the congregation will not know anything about. And to use sensitive information to injure others, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, can become a serious detriment to the pastors and the deacons and the whole church. Just as a deacon must have integrity of speech, so also the wife who does not speak evil of others. Sober-minded. This quality for the wife of the deacon describes a woman who is stable, self-controlled, and level-headed, and free from debilitating excesses. And so this would include the aspect of free of addictions that I mentioned for the men. And so that's also a very important role, and especially due to the amount of influence that a deacon's wife can have on her husband. <clears throat> and then the final qualification is that of being faithful in all things. This means to be dependable, reliable, and trustworthy. 
and that should characterize the wife of a deacon. And this trustworthiness is not limited to her family or the church. It is to permeate everything that she does, faithful in all things. I would assert that I believe all Christian women should, inspire, should aspire to embody these four qualifications for deacons' wives. Reality is most of you will never be a deacon's wife, but these qualities in sisters in the church will have a dramatic impact in a positive way on the church. And so let's not diminish the value of sisters asking the Holy Spirit to be that, help them become worthy of respect, not slanderous, be level-headed and faithful in all things. It will have a positive impact. I have been incredibly blessed to work with Ivan and Nate as co-pastors for the last 11 years plus that we, they've been ordained. <clears throat> we have literally spent hundreds of hours together in meetings, prayer, discussions about the church, wrestling with tough issues and challenges. Um, it's not all been easy, but at the same time, I can say it has been good. Um, the time is here to expand to the fourth person on the team. That's going to change those dynamics. It's exciting and maybe a little bit scary as well as you think about that. Um, as we approach the time to identify the best person to be added to the team, it seems appropriate that I give you a bit of an inside look at our current pastoral team. <clears throat> we have worked together well as a team. Um, we are very different and have differing strengths and I think have complemented each other well. We've had frequently had differing opinions and perspectives from which we've been able to maintain a unity of the spirit. Um, we want, we all want what is best for the church and what Jesus Christ, our head, wants. Um, we have had varying levels of patience and mercy and drive depending on the issue that we're facing. And we've had our share of animated discussions and disagreements that we've had to work through. But, um, but it, like I said, it has been good and I consider that a privilege. In some things, you have been very aware and attuned to our differences and strengths and weaknesses. In other things, you probably have no idea of some of the dynamics that we deal with behind the scenes. And, uh, and I think that that's healthy. I mean, I, I do think that that is, the, is right. Just some of the obvious things that I think probably most of you are aware of is just the overall approach to church. Um, I would... And I've, I've just kind of come up with these. I've kind of bounced them off Ivan and Nate uh, this week, but Ivan would be more mission and outreach oriented. Nate is more of an encourager, relationship oriented. I'm more passionate about the local body and teaching and discipleship oriented. That's just in very broad strokes, but we complement it. We need those, those perspectives. We need that, uh, that way of thinking. When it comes to sermons, Ivan intends to be more topic oriented Nate is more Old Testament narrative-oriented, and I'm more New Testament exposition-oriented. Again, I think that's a great balance, and I like that, and I think there's value in that. When it comes to 
ideas of how to do things or a good approach, Ivan is the one that has the creative ideas. Nate and I struggle on that front. <laughs> um, but, I mean, but I mean, we need each other and, uh, and we, we help each other. <clears throat> but then there's other aspects that are not as obvious. And what I'm about to share, I am doing so with Nate's permission and blessing. Uh, it's something that we have discussed multiple times over the last several months. As most of you know, Nate was involved in a major head-on collision 30 years ago, uh, just last month, <clears throat> and suffered severe head trauma as well as many other injuries. Uh, I don't know that I have all of these descriptions 100% accurate. Nate can correct you, me if, if there are corrections that should be made. But the connections between the two hemispheres of his brain were severely damaged in that accident, in that his, uh, it jarred his brain so bad it severed a lot of the connections between the two hemispheres of his brain. He describes having a hard time keeping his head together, processing things, expressing his thoughts, and um, he has described that he has the brain of an 80-year-old. He continues to suffer daily from these injuries in various ways. He fights frequent sinus infection. Nate is a modern-day miracle. He should have been killed in that accident 30 years ago. But that's not the only miracle. Every time Nate preaches, we may not realize it, but we are experiencing a supernatural miracle of God's grace every single time. Sermon prep for Nate involves not only his time, but also extensive time of Anne to help him organize his jumbled thoughts and get them on paper. I pray fervently for Nate whenever it's his turn to preach because I know how difficult it is for him to prepare. And I marvel after each message. There's not a hint of that incredible stress. And that's what I call a miracle. It's an amazing miracle that God's grace carries him. <clears throat> Due to his seasonal workload, Nate has not been preaching in May or September the last number of years. Since his surgery two years ago, the ability to focus and think clearly and articulate his thought has be thoughts has become drastically worse for Nate. <clears throat> Nate doesn't complain about this. He doesn't want to be pitied. He is willing to do whatever the church asks of him. And I deeply appreciate and respect that posture. On the flip side... Nate has done an outstanding job in keeping in touch with those who are elderly or sick. I asked him about sharing these realities with the church, and he said it's fine with whatever I want to say, and I appreciate that. <clears throat> so why am I telling you this? Four reasons. <clears throat> First, and probably foremost, I believe you should be aware of your pastor's needs 
and should pray for Nate and Ann, especially when it's his turn to preach. Second, I'm very aware that we have to be realistic and acknowledge physical limitations, even if they're unknown to most people. Third, I've been asking myself if the role of deacon with reduced preaching responsibilities is a better fit for Nate at this phase of life. Fourth, I encourage you to talk to Nate about this. He's open to talking about it, but it won't bring it up himself. And I'm certainly open to discussing it further as well if you have questions. In saying this, I want to be very clear. I do not want any of you to conclude that I am pressuring or suggesting how anyone should vote on the deacon role. And it's same time, I think it's unfair to withhold the truth, I don't want to be double-tongued, about the challenges that Nate's facing, especially the last two years. What I am asking is that you pray diligently, that you seek God, and you follow the Holy Spirit's lead as you consider who you believe is the best candidate for the deacon role. As we approach ordaining a deacon for this congregation, from our congregation, I pray that you ask for God's will and his spirit to guide the outcome. Qualifications given in scripture do matter, and these are character qualities, they're not skills. God cares most about our hearts, but qualifications matter for both the deacon and his wife, worthy of respect, holding the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, blameless, full of the Holy Spirit, faithful in all things. Over the next two weeks, I would encourage you to read and pray over 1 Timothy 3 and Acts 6 uh, as you consider and prepare for the upcoming ordination, and would also encourage you to set aside at least an hour in each of these next two weeks to just simply pray and meditate and seek clarity for our church here. Let's stand together for benediction. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for your grace to each one of us as expressed in the testimonies, the needs, but also to us as a leadership team. Thank you for the privilege that we have of moving as a congregation toward ordination of a deacon. I pray that your will be done in all of that. I pray that your spirit would guide us and, and direct in that. As we consider the qualifications given in here in Scripture, I pray that you would inspire and motivate each of us to live those kinds of lives, to mature, to become that kind of person in which we serve each other in the church. Ask your blessing on each one of us as we go from here. Guide us throughout this week for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.